0: 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. In other words, it's a secret mission. And if I tell you, I'll have to kill you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, then David answered the priest and said to him, truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the show bread which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing him to one another and dance, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David is on the run. David is fleeing from Saul, but he's also running from God. There are three things that typically happen when you decide that you are going to run away from God. The first thing is you are open to taking very bad advice. Number two, you typically go in the wrong direction. And number three, wherever it is that you find yourself, you usually wind up making very bad choices, which results in very bad consequences. The man of faith, the man after God's own heart is now failing in his faith. David finds himself fleeing from faith as well as from Saul. Instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of trusting the Lord, David will find himself trying to scheme his way out of a difficult situation. Have you ever done that? Where instead of trusting the Lord, you thought. I need to come up with a plan to get me where I think I need to be or where I want to be. Almost every Christian experiences a time in their life. When instead of running towards the Lord, they're running away from the Lord. You may be running from what you perceive to be your enemies. You may even be running from your family. You might even be running from your friends. You might be running from past failures and past relationships. You might be running from accusations. And the accusations may be true or they may be false. David has left his friendship and fellowship. Of Samuel, the prophet, the comfort and companionship of Jonathan. And he flees to Nob. This is a place in the wilderness where the Ark of the Covenant was kept after the disaster in Shiloh. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, the giant killer, David, the future king of Israel, is hurt and hungry and homeless. David is driven by this relentless pursuit of Saul. And remember what Saul is. I've visited this with you every single occasion. He becomes a type and a picture of the flesh that deprives us of our joy and haunts us and oppresses us as we're trying to serve the Lord with a clean conscience and a pure heart. David has been with the prophet of God, Samuel. Now he's with the priest of God, Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the priest in the house of the Lord. The priests receive that which is lawful for the priest to receive. And David is on a crash course. The man who was anointed by Samuel, who is pursued by Saul, is going to experience this collapse of faith. And he's going to act like a person who doesn't even believe in the Lord. And he's going to flee into the land of the giant that he conquered. How is it possible? How is it possible for a person who knows the Lord and loves the Lord and serves the Lord? How can they stray so far from the Lord? You don't have to look any further than your own heart, do you? Have you ever experienced a situation where you have experienced the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ? And because of fear, you found yourself thinking things and saying things and doing degrading things. That's exactly what's happened. I'm sure you've heard people say. I couldn't. This person claimed to be a Christian, but I I couldn't believe that they treated me this way or or they said this or they did this. John MacArthur tells the story of going into a prison and this person comes to him and says, John, I love you. I just love to listen to your teaching and I love to listen to you on on the radio. Man, I listened to you before I came in here and I'm listening to you now. I love your ministry. What are you in for? Murder? Murder? Don't tell anybody, you know me. Is it possible for a person to know the Lord, love the Lord, and then find themselves doing the most despicable of things? You know what I wish I could tell you? I wish I could tell you that God saved me out of the life of sin and rebellion, which he did. And then after he saved me out of a life of sin and rebellion, I never did anything wrong after that, because you would all know that that's a big, fat, stinking lie. I'm sad to report to you that the worst things that I've ever done. Weren't before I became a Christian. You see, before I became a Christian, I had an excuse. I was a sinner by nature and by choice. But the wicked and despicable things that I did after I got saved, I did it in spite Of grace and in spite of God's mercy. And the sad fact is that people who are estranged from God, people who are running from God can sink to the lowest levels of immorality. We don't have to look far in the biblical record and we read the less than perfect report of Noah in Genesis chapter six. He's building an ark in Genesis chapter nine. His family find him drunk. Abraham, the father of faith, lies to Pharaoh about his relationship with Sarah. Samson, with supernatural strength, doesn't have the strength to control his own sensuality. King Asa is the king of compromise. And Judas, in the New Testament, finds the gate to hell right next door to the gate to heaven. How is that possible? David lies to Saul in chapter 20. He lies to Ahimelech in chapter 21. He's defiled before Ahimelech, the priest of God. He's degraded before Achish, the Philistine king. And in the next chapter, we're going to see David continue struggling. And look what it says in verse 1. Now, David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. This is the high priest. And the tabernacle is located in Nob. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone? Why is it that no one is with you? And so David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you. I'm the man who leads the life of danger. I'm here on a secret mission that can't be told. You know what he does? He lies. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread on my hand, whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. I'm going to have James put up the uh, slide. There is a, a little. Ark. It was a table that was made of gold. And you could see that they would place fresh loaves of bread. And this particular loaf of bread was set aside for the use of the priests. Now, the Lord spoke about this incident in Mark chapter 2, verse 25. Many of you have read this story. You can take it down now, James. He he, In Mark chapter 2, verse 25, but he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who are with him. In Mark chapter 2, this is the story that we've just read. Where he's talking to the religious leaders because the religious leaders were complaining. You'll remember that Jesus had been walking through the grain fields with his disciples. And the disciples, as they went through the grain fields, plucked the heads or the kernels of grain from the stalk of wheat and they ate them. They're not gluten free, by the way. The religious leaders accused Jesus' disciples of doing that which is unlawful. Working on the Sabbath. And Jesus appeals to the story that we have just read how David, a fugitive king, a man on the run from Saul, pauses to eat the bread in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And this was holy bread, bread that was set aside, bread that's consecrated for the priests. In other words, part of the point that Jesus is going to be making in Matthew chapter 12, verse eight, he says, for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The point being Jesus. And his famous father, David. Are both rejected kings. And as Jesus surveys this religious wasteland of first century Judaism, he denounces the leaders for failing to point people to the rest that is in God. Jesus is the Sabbath and Jesus is the person and and the place where a person who's exhausted from running from God. Can find rest. Now think about this for just a moment. Put yourself and begin to think about how Jesus is relating this story of his famous father. Is David full of fear? Yes. Is he running from God? Yes. Is he hungry? Yes. And does Jesus criticize him for his hunger? No. Does that make his deception and his lying okay? What do you think? No, it doesn't make it OK. People who are running from God. People who stop running from God and they start running towards acceptance and freedom. People who are, think they're running from sin and they're running from Satan. People who are running away can find rest. And make no mistake about it. If you know what God wants for you and from you. And you're running in a different direction. You're running from God. The followers of the rejected king were hungry. And they needed to avail themselves of the provision that was set aside for the priests, the showbread. And the religious leaders found fault with this. To them, the ritual observance of the Sabbath was more important than the meaning of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is trying to impress upon them that He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And that you can find rest not in the rules and the rituals that you observe but rather in the full and final faith that you have as you embrace Christ. How is it that we lost sight? How how did it happen that the symbol became more important than the substance? How did the ritual become more important than the relationship? But David is not like his famous son. He's not like the Lord. David eats the unleavened bread that's consecrated for the priest and speaks lies. The leaven of Satan. The leaven of deceit. And I'm sure that the stench of his flesh must have been mingled with the holy incense of the tabernacle. Now, part of what you have to understand is even the typology and the picture of this bread, the bread of God. I want to make just a few quick observations about the food in the sanctuary or the table. There were offerings that were made in the tabernacle, the sin offering, and it illustrates self-evaluation or self-judgment. There was a meat offering which illustrated the new man or the new order of men. There was the shoulder offering of the sacrifice which illustrates strength. And then there was the showbread. The point of the showbread and the offering of the showbread in the tabernacle. Do you know what it illustrated? It illustrates fellowship with God. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. When you break bread, you enter into fellowship. When you go out to lunch with your friends and you, I know I shouldn't use this as an illustration, but like Rubio's fish tacos. And you've got that wonderful tortilla with the fish breaded and the and the pico de gallo. And and you just fold that little baby over and it enters your mouth and there's an explosion of flavor. The food, even if you're with somebody you don't even like, it's really great. Because the food is so good. The companionship and the fellowship is so wonderful. And the bread came to represent the presence of God. And by the way, the twelve loaves with the incense of God represented the nation Before God, and part of what you have to understand, even in the illustration of the showbread in the tabernacle, is the acceptance of God, of the people. That's what this is supposed to illustrate. So in verse three, when it says, now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever you can find. Only the priests were allowed to eat the priestly food. So why does the high priest give David the food? Has the Lord spoken to Ahimelech? Does he know something? Twelve loaves lay on the table. But David only asks for five of the loaves. I think that this is interesting in and of itself. Do you want to know why? Because five in in the number of the old testament when you're thinking of type and symbol five is the number of human weakness six speaks of human strength seven of perfection no doubt david sees this day as a day of failure and a day of pain and a day of hardship and a day of personal distress You know why this becomes so important, though? Because even in failure and even in weakness and even in distress. There's a divine provision. By the way, when Jesus sends the crowd out and he breaks the fish and the loaves, do you remember how many loaves Jesus had? Five loaves. I've studied the Bible long enough to know that there are no coincidences. David, the father, his father, asked for five loaves. And there's a provision that's made. Jesus, the son, takes five loaves. And he breaks it. And he breaks it. And he breaks it. And he feeds scores and then he feeds hundreds and then he feeds thousands. The lesson, if there's any lesson at all, if you can just even draw one great big idea from this particular issue, it is that God is willing to take care of us. And this is going to shock you. This is going to surprise you. It's going to even annoy some of you. God is willing to take care of you. Even when you fail. Does that excuse David's failure? No. Does it excuse David's lie? No. The Lord is going to take care of him, and David's son is going to feed a crowd with five loaves over a thousand years later the reason why this becomes so very, very important to you is God willing to take care of you even when you haven't been exactly right on. There's going to be a reoccurring theme and I want you to get this theme as simple as it is. Deliverance begins... At the point of obedience. It sounds so simple. It sounds even superficial. But the truth is the moment that you decide in your heart that you're going to turn from your sin and you're going to turn from this to the Savior. And you're going to avail yourself of his grace and his mercy and his love. There is deliverance that's available to you. And this is a lesson that David is going to have to learn that he's going to have to find his rest in the true Lord. I don't know if you've ever struggled with legalism. Let me help you with that word. My definition of legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. Do you believe others can only be right with God if they keep the rules? Now, I believe that everyone should read their Bible every day and every every person should pray every day and every and every person I think should go to church not only on Sunday, but on Wednesday nights. And I wish everyone would. But does it make you less of a Christian if you don't? Do you believe God loves you less and you're in danger of losing God's love or God's favor because you fail? Do you go to church because you have to or because you want to? Do you refrain from sin because you genuinely love the Lord or are you fearful of the consequences of sin? I found a test. It's how do you know you have a problem with legalism? Could you be a legalist? Let's take the quiz real. You can just make the check mark in your mind. Answer yes or no to the following questions. Number one, God's love for me depends on what I do. Number two, meeting the expectations of others, especially those in my church or in positions of authority are paramount. Number three, moral and ethical questions are usually black and white and only made into fuzzy shades of gray by hand-wringing, bleeding-heart types. Number four, I try hard to obey God and it, it irritates me that others think that they can get away with avoiding the same level of dedication. Number five, I fall short because I don't have enough faith or because I haven't prayed enough or because I just need to be a better person. Number six, God is predisposed to be angry with me because I'm a sinner. My main goal in life is to try to gain God's favor by doing things that will impress him. Number seven, my sense of spiritual well-being is linked to a Christian leader or membership in my church rather than a personal relationship with the Lord. Number eight. I tell my children not to do something in church or around other Christian families that I allow in my home. Number nine. I believe my church is God's true church. And most other Christians may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Number ten. The exterior choices a person makes and what they wear, their hairstyle, their piercings, their tattoos, make the list as long as you need to, is a clear indication of that person's character. Number eleven. I sometimes worry that people might take advantage of grace if it's preached too much. People might think that they can do anything that they want. Number twelve. After being around Christians for a while, I feel drained. Weary of putting on a false front. Number 13. When I happen to miss a a service or an activity at my church, I feel guilty. Number 14. I will likely get into heaven, even though I'm far from perfect, because, well, I have tried to be a basically good person. And God will take that into account. So how'd you do? I know that there's a couple of check marks there for me. You see, the truth is. You know, you're in danger. When you care more about the rules than you do about people. You know you're in danger when you never or rarely help people out. You know that you are in danger when you place yourself ahead of everyone else. You know you're in danger when you think that grace is what you say before dinner. Instead of what you need to get you through life. You know, you're in danger if you think that you're a good person because you keep the rules and because you never killed anybody. You secretly know that you're unworthy to be loved by God, so you make vows and you make resolutions and you make promises and you struggle to keep them. And then you rarely do. And you hope one day you hope one day you'll be better. And that the person you're most disappointed in in this world is yourself. The reason? Because that's who you believe in. You know, the whole book of Galatians was written for the recovering legalists. The book of Galatians, Paul writes about Fruit bearing and burden bearing and seed bearing and brand bearing in the book of Galatians, he says the fruit of the spirit is love. That means concern for others. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6 two. whatever a man sows that also he or she will reap. Let us not grow weary in doing well, for we will reap. I bear in my body the marks or brands of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, in ancient times. Slaves were branded to indicate ownership. And so the person struggling with legalism. For the person who's struggling with legalism, for the person who needs rest and for the person who needs grace and for the person who needs hope. The Bible gives you permission To find your rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. That his sacrifice, his love, his grace, his mercy is sufficient. This is why Paul writes, you're chosen. You're adopted. You're accepted. You're not on privileged probation. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're on privileged probation. Yes, you're saved by grace through faith, but you're kept because, hey, you're doing your very, very best. Am I trying to give you an excuse to continue to fail? No. Am I trying to give you an excuse? No. What I'm trying to get you to do is to understand that the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the power of God rests squarely in the person of Jesus Christ living inside of you. It has nothing to do with your merit. And when we look at this particular passage, he's given the bread, the holy bread. And in verse seven, it says now. In verse six, it says, so the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken. So we know what day it is. It's Friday. It's the moment before the Sabbath. And now a certain man of that of the servants of Saul was there that day. He Detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief herdsman who belonged to Saul. I think it's interesting. He, David, comes for the bread, but the sight of Doeg must have awakened inside of David a need, a need to protect himself. As a matter of fact, it says, In verse eight, and David said to Ahimelech, is is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. In other words, he sees this person. He feels and experiences this threat. He asks for a weapon. And by the way, we know that this is the only weapon in the whole village. You know how we know that? Because in the next chapter, Doag will come and slaughter everyone in the village. I find it interesting. David is fed from the sanctuary and then he's armed from the sanctuary. And I also find it interesting that Goliath's sword found a place of honor behind the ephod of the high priest. Remember what the ephod is. It is that that breastplate that is worn by the high priest. And so this sword is there next to the ephod. And again, I think it speaks of another high priest. David's future famous son, the Lord Jesus, he will take the weapon of our enemy, death. He will use the instrument itself to defeat death forever. Jesus slays death by dying. Someone has said death is the best weapon in the arsenal of God when wielded by the power of life. The ephod would suggest that the sword must be used under divine direction and in harmony with priestly sensibilities. One Bible writer says. Nor was this lacking in David's battles. He ever inquired of the Lord and he never lost a battle. The, pick, the idea being when David prayed and he cried out to God and he sought God's plan and he sought God's will and he sought God's purpose, he always received God's strength to win God's battles. But when he didn't, he got in trouble. And you see this strange mix of fear and faith. The Bible doesn't seem to condemn the fact that David was fed in the sanctuary or that he's furnished with a weapon in the sanctuary. But he lies in the sanctuary. And he's afraid in the sanctuary. And that is a problem. Well, hasn't David already won this battle? I mean, doesn't he face down his fear and slay the giant? Hasn't David learned that when you have God's faithfulness, you don't have to be afraid? Haven't you ever wondered why there's certain lessons you have to learn over and over and over again? Have you ever said, Lord, I thought I thought we were done with this particular issue. Lord, I thought it was time to move on. But David begins to doubt and to falter and then to fail. David becomes confused about what he believes. And now he's confused about how he behaves. How is it possible for a person to believe one way and behave another? And remember how David chronicles much of his life in the scripture? As a matter of fact, in Psalm chapter 52, he talks about this very incident with his little encounter with Doag. And we're going to talk about this a little bit next week as well. In Psalm 52, it says to the chief musician, a contemplation of David when Doag, the Edomite, went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone into the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. Is he talking about Doeg or is he talking about himself? Doeg didn't lie. David did. The Psalms divided into two parts. The first half of the Psalm, we see a man, behold, the strong man that made not God his strength. And the other half, in contrast, we see the man who makes the Lord his strength. And later, Doeg will violently kill everybody in the village to avenge Saul. And this is going to cause David's blood to boil red hot Doeg is Saul's dog and he is a butcher and some people have seen in David's description in Psalm 52 another man a boaster and a butcher who becomes a type of the man of sin the Antichrist who will stain the nation of Israel in their own blood and seek to establish his kingdom and he will be like another Edomite who looms large on the horizon by the way Edom is the place where Herod was from. He was called an Edumaean. And it is Herod who slaughters the innocents. Doeg is Saul's dog and Doeg is a butcher. And in verses 8 and 9 it says, And David said to Ahimelech, Is They're not here on hand, a spear or a sword, for I have neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is. It's wrapped. Take it. He grips Goliath's sword. What do you think that did? What do you think happened when he picked up the sword and he placed it in his hand? Do you think that there was a flood of memories that came back? How he challenged the giant and how he defeated the giant and how he cut the giant's head off with his own sword. This trophy of his victory should have been a symbol and an assurance of future help. But he picks the sword up and he refuses to believe that God will help him. And he finds himself in a place of fear and unbelief. Have you ever done that? Have you ever picked up your Bible and asked? Do I really believe this? Are the promises of God true? Can I trust the promises of God? He leaves the Lord inheritance for the land of the vanquished giant. And look what it says. So the priest said. The sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you slew. And then in verse 10, it says, then David arose and fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. This means that David is going in the wrong direction. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it like out loud. You know, there's two kinds of things that I look for from you. Tell me and then it's a rhetorical question. Here's the rhetorical question. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't really belong? You knew that that's not for you. This is not the place where you belong. David flees from the house of God and the land of God, and he takes refuge in the land of the giants, the nation of Philistia. He goes to Gath, not just any city in Gath. He goes to the capital. It would be like. It's the Washington, D.C. of Philistia. It's like Babylon in Babylonia. And isn't it interesting? Faith took David to Elah, where as a young shepherd boy, he kills the giant. And now fear causes him to run. And he runs straight to the capital of the place where his mortal enemy used to live. And that's what fear will do. Fear will cause you to run in the direction of the things that were once familiar to you or that you thought were going to be helpful to you. David is running from Saul, the flesh, to the very fortress of God's enemy. And David's fear is his folly. And so is ours. When are you most likely to make the worst mistake of your life? It's probably when you're afraid, huh? How am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to provide for my children? How am I... How am I going to live? How am I going to work? How am I going to survive? David has abandoned the counsel of his friend Samuel. He's abandoned the comfort of his friend Jonathan. He has abandoned the safety of Ahimelech. He is not seeking to worship the Lord. And he's certainly not seeking God's will. God worked through Samuel. And you'll remember he was saved from Saul's soldiers. But when we are out of fellowship with the Lord... We often seek counsel from the worst source. You ask your unbelieving mother, you ask your unbelieving father, you ask your unbelieving friend, you ask your unbelieving coworker. When you're running from God, do you think the best source of information are people who don't know God or love God? And our sad and bad choices invariably leads, leads us to sad and bad consequences. By the way, Doeg will tell Saul of David's trip to Nob And scores of people will die. As a matter of fact, Doeg will kill 85 people. One person escapes Abiathar. And when David is told of the disaster, we're going to take a quick look at chapter 22, verse 22. Just turn the chapter just very quickly to chapter 22, verse 22 and read what it says. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have caused The death of all the persons of your father's house. My rebellion. My disobedience. My failure. My choices are linked unmistakably to you. You see, the truth is, whenever you enter into another person's life, when you have a husband or a wife or a child or a pastor or a congregation, when you are linked to other people, the choices that you make and the decisions that you make have consequences. I want to ask you a question. Do you think, David, if you would have told him, David, if you do this, all these people are going to die? What do you think he would have said? Wow, this is just the wake-up call I needed to get back on track. Maybe, maybe not. Did anyone ever grab you and shake you and say, The choices that you are about to make are going to leave a lasting impression on the people that you love. Running from God, refusing to trust God, believing bad advice leads to bad consequences. Lying, deceiving, departing from fellowship. David follows his own desperate plans. And by the way, that's typically what will happen when you decide to depart from fellowship with God and you decide to embark on your own desperate plans. You're going to set in motion a series of events that typically aren't going to end well. You had sex with your girlfriend and now she's pregnant and you're sorry. Why didn't God make the pregnancy go away? You selfishly made the decision to destroy your marriage, and now you want your marriage back. We make mistakes when we're afraid. We purchase things with credit cards. Well, how am I going to live? How am I going to support my family? How will I eat? How will I defend myself? How will I take care of my business? How will I finish school? And all of a sudden, the fears come and they they overwhelm us. And David is collapsing under the fear. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, during a circus in the Colosseum, there was a a Christian who was thrown to a hungry lion and the spectators cheered and the wild beast pounced. But the Christian quickly whispered something in the lion's ear and the lion backed away in sheer terror. And so they released another lion and the Christian whispered in his ear again and the lion backed off. and it happened a third time. And finally, the emperor called a guard over and he said, Find out what that Christian whispered into that lion's ear. And the guard came back and he said, he said, after dinner, you're going to be required to say a few words to the audience. I know you're thinking, this is a joke. I was expecting a real story from you. Fear. Even by those who are ferocious will sometimes cause you to back down. Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you won't fear anything else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you're going to fear everything else. There's a reason why God gave you the capacity to be afraid. And and again, I'm not talking about that terrifying situation. I'm talking about that normal emotional circumstance inside of you that causes you to look both ways before you cross the street. Your your body is supposed to respond to danger. There's a self-preservation mechanism that God has placed in you. And it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. Joseph Hall, a Puritan of several hundred years ago, wrote the wicked are cowards and they're afraid of everything. They're afraid of God because he is his enemy. They're afraid of Satan because he is their tormentor of God's creatures because they, joining with their maker, fight against him of himself because he bears about with him his own accuser and executioner. He's talking about his conscience. The godly man, contrarily, is afraid of nothing, not of God because he knows him as his friend and he knows that his friend won't hurt him, not of Satan because Satan can't hurt him. Not of affliction, because he knows that they come from a loving God and end in his good. Not of the creature, since the very stones in the field are in league with him and of himself, since his conscience is at peace. You don't want to be afraid anymore. The fear of man will make you do desperate and stupid things. And David's case is desperate. But where is his faith? Why has he forgotten about God? David carries Goliath's sword. You know what this means? In part, David is carrying Goliath's sword, but past victories don't ensure present trust. You can't rely on your past victories. And you can't rely on your past faith. In your present circumstances. David will make some terrible decisions. And God still has some work that he needs to do in him. Again, I know this sounds simple. I know it sounds too good to be true. But when you trust in the Lord, you set in motion a series of circumstances that will lead to your deliverance. I'm going to say it again. When you trust the Lord, it sets in motion a series of circumstances that ensure deliverance. So what's David doing in Gath? You know, this is just not right. This would be like Larry Flint showing up at a Christian booksellers convention. This is like Paris Hilton showing up at a Mensa meeting. David thinks that he's fleeing Saul's court, so he's going to be welcome in the camp of the enemy? Think about that for just a minute. You're running from God, so you think that the best source of information and comfort is your unbelieving friends? So he goes to the place, the hometown of Goliath. You know, what that would be like if someone came to Denver after killing John Elway, and you just don't know about it. Hey, guess what? There's certain things that you never forget. And the occupants of Gath never forgot that David killed their hero. And that's the point. Hey, wait a minute. This David guy. Wasn't there a song about him? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Hey, isn't that a song about him killing us? Can you imagine Osama bin Laden going to New York and going on the Letterman show? And going, hey, you know, all of that is in the past. We can sort of be friends now. You think that's going to (laughs) happen? And so. It says, now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands. Scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. You know what happened? He pretended like he didn't have both oars in the water. He pretended that the threads were stripped. He pretended to be insane. So question, is he really pretending? The text says he is. Will fear and terror make you act? Crazy. It's certainly true of David. By the way, how does the king respond? Hey, death has plenty of nut jobs. We don't need any more. Let me look around. Plenty of psychos already. I don't need one more nut job in my court. Get rid of them. David can't get help and the enemies can. David has lost his job. David has lost his wife. David has lost his friend. And now he's lost his self-respect. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you wondered, do I have anything left to lose? David writes Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, and we'll take a look at that. In the not-too-distant future, David can't trust human beings. Trusting a human being is like trusting a rusty nail with the sharp end pointing in your eye. Just do a little thought experiment for a moment. Imagine you're going to lay down on a rusty nail. What do you suppose is going to happen? the rusty nail is going to penetrate your flesh and it is going to hurt you. David leaves death. In Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, he writes a song. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. So how do you rise above the fear and the lies? There's a voice that awakens inside of David's heart that the way to rise above the fear and the way to rise above the lies is worship and supplication. How is he going to get past the pain? How is he going to experience hope the way that David does it? is through worship and through prayer. In Deuteronomy thirty three, twenty seven it says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting wings. In Isaiah forty one ten it says, Fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, because I am your God, I will strengthen you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's the real problem. If you are leaning on someone else. You're not leaning on God. And if you're running away from God. The chances are. You're going to listen to bad advice. The chances are. You're going to make wrong decisions. The chances are. The decisions that you make. Are not just simply going to hurt you. They're going to hurt the people you love and who love you. Huh. Crutches may offer temporary l- relief, but in the end, that's exactly what they are. If you're leaning on someone else, if you're leaning on something else, if you're looking to someone or something to be your ever-present help in time of need to make the fear go away and to make the lying stop, the only way that you're going to be able to rise above it, I think, is to place your confidence and your trust in David's son. Because he's going to give you grace. And He's going to give you mercy. And a voice is going to whisper in your ear, you're in trouble and you've you've run out the grace ticket. No, you haven't. His grace, His mercy, His love isn't simply available when things are going great. It's available when things are going bad. So guess what? Avail yourself of the grace and the mercy that's available in David's son. Do you need rest because you're so tired of running? Then run to Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few moments. We're going to have communion in just a few moments. All I ask that you do is that you just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to participate together. So while Isaac comes out and while the guys come forward, I'm just going to pray for a moment and we're going to distribute these this bread and this juice. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that the real bread is the bread that came down from heaven, the bread that allows us to enter into friendship and fellowship. And Heavenly Father, for the person who's been running so long and so far from you. Lord, for the person where lying and pain seem to be the thing that they wake up to and live for and go to bed at night thinking about. Lord, I pray that they would find rest in David's son. That in Jesus we have not just a rest from wickedness, but we have a full and a final rest in grace and in mercy and in love. That, Lord, we can find our rest in Jesus. And, Lord, I know that sometimes deliverance is only as far away as a willingness to turn from our sin and to turn from you. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. I pray for the person who finds themselves surrounded by pain and surrounded by deception and wants to walk away from that wickedness and walk into your arms. Lord, I pray that they would experience love and hope. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and trust Jesus. The Savior who died on the cross and who rose from the dead. that David's life and David's circumstances become a type and a picture of David's son. Lord, he was running for his life and he was hungry and he was hurt. And he just needed some bread. And Heavenly Father, I know that there are people here who are hungry and who are hurt and they need to taste fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and that they would turn to Jesus. Knowing that there's grace and there's mercy, and if that's you. It's that simple. You just cry out in your heart and say, Lord, I want to receive you. I want to experience your love and your grace, your friendship and your fellowship. Lord, I'm tired of running away from you and I want to run into your arms. And I want to experience that nourishment and that fellowship. Lord, I'm tired of pretending that I'm insane because I'm so afraid of what people will think. Lord, I pray that you would heal hearts, that you would restore lives, that you would forgive hearts. And that you would make people whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Go uh-huh. ahead.